how's everyone's WOMAD plans going? It is the best festival in the world. Um, there was just this, I, hear, I already hear it was a wonderful welcome to country that we had out on one of the main stages, but I'd also like to acknowledge that we meet on the traditional lands of the Ghana people, that they never ceded sovereignty and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm Tori Shepherd. I'm a journalist here at The Advertiser, the local paper. Um, I am a staunch advocate for action on climate change, so I'm very happy to be here at this Planet Talks. This session is called Being Seen and Heard, the power and passion in the student climate strike movement. And I'm up here with three of the young members of that movement. So I've got... Oh, thank you. You know, you can just interrupt with clapping at all times. Anytime any of us says anything funny or smart, just clap and holler. It actually, it's kind of a boost, isn't it? So I'm here with Malou Albrecht, who's 15 years old from Castle, Maine. One of the circus lovers in this troupe. Um, and so there will be, as the world tipped here later, you're going to go see that. There are some amazing performances. I'm looking forward to that. Um, Malou was inspired by the young climate activist Greta Thunberg, who I'm sure we've all heard of, the young woman who strikes fear into the hearts of conservative columnists all over the world. And Malou, along with Harriet O'Shea-Carré, who we'll meet in just a second, and another friend, Callum Nielsen-Bridgefoot, the Castle Main Three, it's a little like a murder trio, but I like it, the Castlemaine Three, started the Australian Student Strike for Climate Movement in Castlemaine in what would go on to be the Australian part of a global movement. I'm going to come back to you, Doha. Mm -hmm. And so Harriet, who's also 15, also circus. In fact, you were standing on your head before. Is that a getting the blood to the brain sort of thing? Just for fun. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, so you joined the Castlemaine Three, started the school strike. You went to the first United Nations Youth Climate Summit. And I was reading in an interview that you said, if the people who are leading us aren't doing any leadership, then I will. It's kind of chutzpah, but kind of cool. That gets a clap. And Doha Khan is our local hero here. She's the South Australian, um, from the South Australian branch, the co-founder of the School Strike for Climate. She argues that politicians are selling off a future that is not just theirs, but belongs to young people, children, farmers, and indigenous communities. <laughs> These are just some of the millions of young people concerned about the future of the planet. Um, I'm sure I'm not alone when you think about 15-year-olds heading off to the UN and being part of that kind of global movement. I feel this kind of chagrin and think about what I was doing at that age. Um, and it was nothing quite that worthy. It's probably working out how not to bum suck a cigarette. But these guys are angry, fearful for the future, and demanding to be heard. And they've helped kick off this global movement with demonstrators all over the world. So everyone should listen up. And I just want to start, you guys, with how you first got inspired, how you first... Let's start with you, Malou. So, you know, you're a 15-year-old, you're at school, and all of a sudden you're thinking global. How did you get inspired to take action on climate change? Well, um, for me, I grew up in a family where climate action and talking about the climate crisis that we faced was common. Um, and so we... As a child and throughout my primary schooling, um, we would be going to protests um, about climate change and talking about it and learning about it and was very, was always common. Um, so I felt like it was just kind of part of, part of my life was just kind of like, well, you have to do something about that. So that's what I've got to do. Did that make you unusual? among your peers? Um, I don't think so, not with my peers. Uh, my peers would always come along to um, our protests and my friends always coming along and probably all my friends are part of the school strikes, Castle Maine. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think for me that was quite normal just mm -hmm. in the whole kind of community that I live in. And I think when we get to Greta, uh, to Greta, this is Greta, amazing. <laughs> when we get to Harriet, we'll talk a bit more about Greta and the role she plays as a, as a model. But Doha, as the South Australian, how did you realise that this is something that you were passionate about and wanted to spend your time on? 
Well, yeah, um, I reckon what drove me to action, because I don't come from an activist family. Like, my dad is very politically disengaged. Same with my mum. Is he here? He's not here, no. Oh, okay. So you can say um, what you like. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I guess what drove... It was a bit of a coincidence. So I came across um, Facebook events from Melbourne and Sydney and I thought, you know, Adelaide needs to join the bandwagon. We need one as well. Um, so I reached out to just an organisation that was working with some of the interstate um, strikes and I got added to a group chat and it just kind of went from there. But um, I guess what made me care about climate change was seeing the human cost of it. So my background is Pakistani and I visit Pakistan um, pretty frequently. But um, yeah, like I've seen a lot of, because uh, my mother comes from a farming community. Her like her neighbours, all her old neighbours are farmers. Um, and increasingly in recent times, you like I've seen a lot of, you know, young girls, young children having to leave school and join the workforce as labourers or as housemaids, which is very common over there, um, instead of going to school because they need to help their family um, make ends meet because farming is no longer enough. And just seeing the sacrifices that young people are already having to make um, has been a big motivator for why like, I started caring because obviously I'm not in that position. I have a lot of privilege to be able to take time off school to strike um, so other people across the world, thousands and thousands of kilometres away, can actually go to school and, you know, be young people without having their future taken away like that. Wow. And the farming in Pakistan has got more difficult because of climate change and drought. And Undeniably, yeah. The heat waves have increased astronomically. Um, the death toll rises every single year. And this is a community that barely has running water. They have to do, like, the hand pump thing. Um, sorry, I don't know what it's called. But um, it's... Yeah, they are very under-resourced, very underprivileged, and of course they are on the front lines of climate change despite having a minuscule carbon footprint compared to, you know, people in countries like ours. Amazing. Greta, can we just call you that? <laughs> Sorry. Now, Harriet, you've spoken to Greta? Uh, yeah, well, we had a we talked with her uh, via Skype um, at the you know beginning, um, but I've never spoken to her in person. <laughs> would you like to? <laughs> yeah, definitely. That would be amazing. So she's, I mean, you know, she is now known around the world. She sparked the school strike. She took it from nothing to this global movement. Was it her specifically that inspired you to get this started in Australia? Um, yeah, uh, well, she was definitely a contributing factor, um, but I think there were a lot of other inspirations too, um, of course, uh, you know, this, what, what she started was incredible, um, and that was really empower empowering for me to see how, um, someone, you know, who couldn't vote and didn't have a say in our political system could make their voice heard, and I think it's so important that, um, in a time like this, it's the people who are suffering the implications of climate change that are having their voices, like, empowered. Um, so I thought that it was really inspirational that uh, she designed a movement specifically to empower the people who will be inheriting, um, you know, this planet, um, youth. So, yeah, that was definitely a massive inspiration for me. But uh, also, like, what Doha was talking about, Another massive thing for me was just realizing uh, how privileged I am to be living, you know, in you know this situation with access to such a good education, um, and where I'm not really feeling the direct imp uh, implications of climate change nearly to the same extent that people like in Pakistan and in so many other countries are, um, and it's really like my moral responsibility to be doing that um, for the people that really need my voice. Wow. That, that's, that's amazing, particularly because teenagers are generally thought of as selfish. I remember being pretty selfish when I was a teenager, and I don't remember talking about privilege at all when I was a teenager. So to hear you guys vocalise that is, is really incredible. Um, so just on Greta, and we're going to get back to the specific movement in a bit, but why does she terrify people so much? What is it? about this young girl that has powerful middle-aged white men in Australia freaking out and writing columns and trying to tear her down. 
That is a very good question. Um, I think it's because she says it how it is. Um, I think for so long people are used to hearing like a really fluffed up version of the reality, like, oh, climate change is real, it's happening, um, it's bad. But Greta is out here on a world stage, like in front of the United Nations, um, you know, forum, um, you know, saying that our house is on fire, we need to act like it is, it's an emergency. Um, and, you know, how dare you mess with our futures like this. And I think for a lot of um, people, a lot of people in power who are used to having a lot of people suck up to them and just all that, it's quite confronting. And I guess their immediate reaction is to be defensive. And that's what we've seen um, from, you know, a lot of uh, commentators across the world, a lot of defensiveness and that um, has evolved into like a lot of aggression as well, I think. Yeah, Malou, do you think it's because she's young, and she's a chick that people feel like, why, you know, we should be the dominant voices in this debate. Who, who's this? Um, I think a little bit, yeah. I think that it's like this, you know, 16-year-old then, 17-year-old, has just, like, come up and just, like, told us what to do. Like, how dare she? Um, and I think it's a bit of that. Um, yeah. And if you guys know... The media, there have been some appalling things said in the media about the school strikes, but have you guys copped it personally? Harriet? Um, yeah, we definitely get a lot of uh, negative feedback, which can be expected, you know, when we're advocating for something so um, controversial. <laughs> um, Shouldn't be, though, should it? <laughs> no. Um, yeah, well, Malou, like, still doesn't have a phone, I know, and I only got a phone, like, a couple months ago, so I've been very disconnected from the whole social media world, um, which probably really helped um, a lot in terms of that because I just uh, am not very exposed to that negativity because it really does mainly happen on uh, social media platforms. Um, I think it's really easy for people not to think of you like a human um, because they're looking at their screen, um, not an actual person. So I think I've been really lucky in you know not having to take that um, and my community is so supportive and my family, so I've really been surrounded by a lot of, you know, support. So it hasn't um, impacted me too much, which is really lucky. Um, but I know that lots of, you know, other strikers haven't had the same um, experience as I have. Yeah, like definitely, especially, you know, being brown and being, um, yeah, a young woman. Um, being on social media is quite, yeah, negative, especially the comments section. Um, I think Never a lot read of... read the comments to uh, her. Yeah, I know, <laughs> like, you can't help it because you're there and you're like, what are oh, people saying? I want to yeah. know, but I don't want to know, but I want to mm. know. Um, but a lot of it has been, like, super personal, you know, like, picking on things that are totally not climate change related. Um, but, yeah, I think there is a lot of dehumanisation that goes on on social media. Um and, yeah, copying that has been rough, but at the same time, you know, we've built this incredible support network. Like, we have so many fellow strikers that are there to, you know, tell you that you're okay. <laughs> um, so it's not been that bad. Better than okay, I would have thought. I wonder if you've got some advice, any of you, about, you know, young people might be afraid of putting themselves out there because they have seen what comes back when you challenge the status quo, when you, when you challenge capitalism and the patriarchy. You know, it, come, it comes back pretty swiftly and pretty hard. Is it building a community like you have? What are your other tips to like, cope with that kind of backlash? Don't, don't, don't read the comments is one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I reckon just have courage. Um, I think it takes three seconds of courage to do something really big. Like, I'm running for council, um, and it took me about, oh, yeah. congratulations. Thank you, 30 seconds to like, sign up to the electoral form. Um, I haven't really thought out the campaign or anything, but um, yeah, it just takes three seconds of courage to change the world, and that's what happened with Greta, and that's what happened with Malau and Harriet as well. I feel like what you guys are doing is a microcosm of what happens in general with women and political activism, um, you know, from seeing our first female prime minister being attacked so unfairly in gender-based attacks, and then you guys draw a lot, draw a lot more of it. Um, okay, so everyone's panicking about coronavirus, mm -hmm. and not so much about climate change. 
Why do you think it is that we can swing into action, we can have press conferences from the Prime Minister every day on the coronavirus, we can have people panic buying toilet paper, WOMAD's okay, everyone, you can relax. Um, but when it comes to climate change, they just can't swing into gear. Malou, is it because it's such a long-term problem that people don't want to face up to it? Yeah, I think, I feel like climate change is a kind of, a, it seems more like an idea. It's not like, oh my God, as Harriet says, you can just point at it. You can't point at climate change. Whereas with coronavirus, there feels like there's like a response that you have to immediately do. Mm. Um, and climate change is kind of like, oh, it's, you know, it's just... It's going to happen, you know. And it'll just be it's, our kids yeah, who suffer the consequences. Be, yeah, it'll be fine um, for us, you know. Yeah, anyway. Harriet? Yeah, I was just thinking, like, I think a, like, big contributor is, like, with climate change, we see the people that are most affected are those that contribute the least and are in the least privileged positions um, and therefore are not those, like, at the top of the social hierarchy in positions of power, um, generally speaking. Um, and so, like, with coronavirus, um, it you know, it affects people much more sort of randomly. Um, and so, you know, it, it really, people really seeing, you know, seeing this happen and going, oh my gosh, we need to do something about it. But when it comes to climate action um, or climate change, uh, it, the people that are making the decisions and the people with the most power and influence aren't really feeling the implications on their own life and they're not seeing how their decisions are impacting other people. Um, and so it's really easy not to think of it as a, you know, as a problem. And they're not making that connection between, like, you know, these bushfires and natural disasters we're seeing and their own, you know, carbon emissions. Um, yeah. There's some tricky words they use as well, isn't there? So with the bushfires... In a sense, it's true that you can't point to one specific bushfire and say climate change did that because the truth is climate change extended the fire season, um, affected the drought, all these sorts of things. How do you feel when you see the politicians using those kind of... They've often been called weasel words to avoid acknowledging the truth. Doha, do you, you know, do you scream or do you not watch the television or do you scream at the television when you see that happening? Oh, yeah, like internally, it's just a big, you know... Massive scream, but um, yeah, the thing is, it's like a convenient, it's an inconvenient truth for them, and so they choose not to acknowledge it. Um, yeah, I think it's yeah, pretty awful. Milou, how do we how do we break that? How do we make it immediate? Oh, that is a big question, and if we had the answers, we wouldn't be sitting there. But I guess what I was thinking about earlier was a lot of the research shows that throwing facts at people doesn't change their minds. So you know. Oh, there's a scientific consensus. It's not changing people's minds. Sometimes it is, but it's not converting to action. Have you seen, for example, with the bushfires, that the emotion can maybe get people more interested in what they can do about climate change? Yeah, definitely. I think that connecting with someone on, a, on an emotional level is really important, and I think that's a, a important way of getting the message across because people need to know that, you know, their thoughts and their emotions are reflected or that they're acknowledged. And I think that that's um, important to acknowledge. Yeah. I mean, I guess behind it there is these people who are threatened and your brain sort of shuts down in a, almost a defensive mode. So a lot of the challenge comes in breaking through those defences. But it's not all older people, <laughs> you know, present company and all that. Have you, wh why do you think it's just some people refusing to accept? Is it because a lot of people will accept the science and accept that it's anthropogenic, but if they have to pay anything, i.e. a carbon tax, it's as soon as they have a personal cost is when they get defensive... I think go Harriet. I think like lots of people are really paralyzed with fear. Um, you know, partly because we're not talking about the solutions enough and we're very focused, you know, on the problems, which, you know, is understandable. But people don't necessarily, you know, want to believe this is happening because they feel helpless and like they can't, you know, do anything about it as an individual. But also uh, 
because, yeah, people are scared of the changes that will have on their life and their lifestyle and scared, you know, as soon as they acknowledge that climate change is happening, they're a horrible person for, you know, not doing anything about it and we're very uh, attached to our, like, consumerist lives in countries, you know, like Australia um, and people don't want to let that go. No. Doha, do you think that's changing? I mean, I've seen a lot of people doing things like aiming to be a plastic-free household, um, to, you know, ride the bike more often, to do to be a bit more climate-friendly in their own backyard. Do you think there's traction there? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, I think people are finally starting to weigh up, you know, the cost of maybe a carbon tax or changing or making lifestyle changes with the alternative, which is, you know, a very polluted world, a world in which we are seeing bushfires and droughts and, you know, skyrocketing fruit and vegetable prices as the norm. And, you know, as a response to all of that, people are finally taking the steps and finally seeing the need and the urgency of changing things. Yeah. Right. Continue. All right. So let's, let's talk about the movement specifically. It's all well and good to have protests. In fact, they're brilliant and they're motivating and they're inspiring and they're bringing people in. But what's the plan to start affecting policies? So, I don't know who to throw to first because that was another big question. But I guess I want to know... All right, so you've been to the UN. Um, hopefully there are more opportunities to interact with policy makers. I guess I just was a little devastated that despite people, a lot, most of Australians agreeing that climate change exists and that action is needed, it hasn't kind of flowed through to who we elect. Doha, do you want to start? How do you make this real? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, politicians are very good at what they do and that is, you know, conveying a narrative that helps them get elected, whether or not it is true, whether or not there is any truth to it. Um, and I think with our movement, what we do is we convey that there is still a strong public mandate for climate action. So after the election, um, yeah, of course, the Labor Party is going to go away and review all their policies and think about why the Australian public did not vote for them. But um, I think our movement conveys that they should not touch their climate policy. There is still strong support for their climate policy. And if they do, you know, make it a race to the bottom when it comes to climate action, they will lose support. And that um, is conveyed through our massive crowds. Malou, are you hopeful that... <laughs> Sorry, I keep talking over the clapping. It's terrible. <laughs> how, do, how do you feel about the state of politics Labor sort of went off and licked its wounds for a while. And I think there was a, you know, there was a pretty big fear that they would back away from some of their climate commitments. Um, Anthony Albanese has obviously come out and said, you know, zero net emissions by 2050, but that's still quite far down the track. No, I was devastated. Um, I still kind of am about how could we elect um, a government that didn't have a just... Um, you know, climate policy. Um, yeah. How do, we, still... how do you convince them from here? I mean, and I don't just mean, I don't just mean you guys, but isn't part of the problem here like changing the narrative so people don't see the climate crisis as some kind of impost on them, but more like an opportunity? Um, and what's the true cost of the other side? You can take that as a statement rather than a question. <laughs> Good statement. Yeah. So, Harriet, what, did, what, what happened at the UN summit? <laughs> um, a lot. <laughs> it was a, such an exciting event because it brought together people from all around the world, um, which is just so important because um, climate change really does affect everyone um, and to massively varying extents, which is really important to recognise. But no matter where you're from, it will have some impact. Um, and there isn't just one simple solution. There's not one thing you can do to, you know, get our climate under control. Uh, it's, you know, controlling, uh, keeping our temperatures down uh, will mean so many different solutions, such a massive variety. And we really need to be talking to people from all different walks of life um, to 
to make sure that, you know, we're implementing solutions that, uh, you know, will, will bring forward climate justice for everyone um, and, you know, address all the different implications that, you know, people are facing from climate change. So it was really just an opportunity for uh, people from all over the world to present their ideas about, uh, you know, what, what they could do to, to do for... <laughs> sorry. Um, how we can, you know, move forward... Um, and like creative and innovative solutions to uh, lots of the little problems we're facing with climate change and then connecting all of those things together to come up with, you know, bigger solutions. So what kind of solutions... I'm sticking with you, sorry. What kind of solutions are most exciting? I, I read this cool one uh, that London has made these kind of trees out of this hyperabsorbent moss that just sucks carbon out of the atmosphere and I think each one is like the equivalent of 400 trees but it's just this beautiful green thing that's also a park bench that you can go and sit on. So what, what sort of ideas are you excited about? Yeah, um, yeah, it's really interesting to talk about like the solutions we're excited about because often, you know, we're looking at climate change like, oh no, like all the horrible impact it's going to have on our life, but it's an amazing opportunity to, you know, really change things and to bring forward heaps of really new things. So yeah, I'm really excited about lots of things like... Uh, I heard about people who are, like, storing carbon in building materials um, and using that, you know, to make things with, which I think is really exciting. Um, and then, you know, building eco-communities and, uh, you know, growing biodynamic food, um, growing seaweed and making plastic out of that so that it's not only, like, compostable and biodegradable, but it's also carbon sequestering in its growth. Um, I think all kinds of things like that are really exciting. Yeah, and hopefully they get that sort of that sort of cool cachet as well. You know, like there are products now where people will pay extra if it's eco-friendly. So hopefully that catches on. Doha, what do you both in policies and technology, what do you what do you get excited about? Um, yeah, carbon sequestering technology is fascinating. Um, and I definitely think it's needed, but um, yeah, no, I definitely think that climate action means no new fossil fuels and it means moving towards renewable energy. Like, we can try to fix the problem, but we should first try to stop making the problem worse. Yeah. And as a South Australian, you know, we've been first movers mm -hmm. in this space, for Absolutely. which, because of that one wiggy little blackout, uh, we, we Which got was ridiculed. not caused by renewable energy, by the way. Um, but, yeah. Exactly. So if there's anyone here from, um, no, I was going to say interstate, but everyone knew about it, anyone from overseas, we had a sort of a perfect storm of cascading events, which involved a wind farm, but it wasn't wind technology, it was the little jiggamy what's it that controls the, that went out of whack, <laughs> showing my level of technological knowledge there, um, but interstate, everybody jumped on that as proof that renewables were not working, but they are now do you think like do your cohort your friends your peer group do they talk about the renewables in south australia and understand how well they've been working i mean we are very very proud of our renewables in south australia um yeah guys <laughs> um because we work i work within a network of 500 strikers from 130 different locations and the south Aussies are always flexing how we are like our like the city is 100 percent renewables like we're very rapidly moving. We've got towards. a really big battery. Uh huh. That's true. We do. Ours is the biggest. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a massive source of pride, and it's also a massive source of motivation for our interstate allies because they see that you know if South Australia can do it, then why can't you know why can't we? Yeah. I like that idea of stop the problem in the first place, as well as now that it's happened, try and rein it back in. Milou, what do you, what kind of projects do you think are going to help save the planet? Um, is there a technology that's kind of captured your imagination or a policy that somebody's come up with where you think? I'm really excited about um, over in America, the Green New Deal. I think that's an amazing policy that we could move forward to Australia. You can tell us some more about that because I don't know anything. Oh, 
Yeah. It's really fascinating. It's like nice handball, Malu. <laughs> an all-encompassing policy that you know recognizes that climate change is not just an environmental issue. It's a massive social issue, and it has a lot of human rights impacts. Um, it impacts um, a lot of like you know fossil fuel workers who really do rely on the industry for their livelihoods. So um, it takes them along with us on that journey towards climate action, and doesn't leave them behind. It provides skills and trainings and all that sort of stuff to um, yeah, transition society away from fossil fuels in a way that doesn't really fuck anyone over. Well put. <laughs> um, so, Harriet, what kind of... What I get from you guys is you're very um, intersectional because it's not just climate change. It's that human rights side of it. It's how various people are affected. What, what is held up on signs at your protests? Like the kind of, I guess, the diversity of things that you care about. Because there was a Stop Adani stream within the protest. What, what else is the movement looking at? Um, our movement uh, is very focused on like the idea of climate justice um, and making sure that as you know we move forward. Um, and make our, you know, make our society more sustainable. We also, you know, do that without leaving anyone behind, as you were saying. Um, it's so important um, that, you know, this doesn't mean <laughs> this doesn't mean uh, uh, people work, working in the fossil fuel industry losing their jobs, and it doesn't mean, you know, it's so important that we give everyone um, who is impacted the help that they need based on the extent to which they're impacted. Um, so it's so important, um, yeah, that we focus on a just transition for everyone. And you got a woo! <laughs> that was great. And that's kind of what you talked about there is almost getting to the heart of our political paralysis in Australia because you talk about stopping Adani and fossil fuels but then you've got the powerful Queensland nationals who are like, we can't lose any coal jobs. And nobody's talking about the way that people could transition across to different industries. What would you, what would you say to those coal workers who, you know, they might, not, they might not understand the implications of climate change, all they see is a threat to their jobs? Uh, well, if, you know, if when we start to transition away from the fossil fuel industry, we'll be replacing that, you know, energy with, um, you know, other sources, renewable sources, hydropower, like solar, wind power, all those kinds of things. So I'm sure that, that you know, it's really important that our governments uh, ensure that uh, when we move away, you know, from these fossil fuels, uh, those jobs will be replaced with new sustainable ones. Yeah. Milou, I feel like older people don't really understand the proper angst that, that climate change is causing for younger people who know that they're going to have to live with that legacy. Do you think that there's more space for younger people to understand the angst of older people, for example, people who work in fossil fuel and can't quite see what the future holds for them in a, if there's climate change action? I mean, it, I think it, it, could you edu is there a way to, I guess, educate? Because the politicians, I think, won't take the initiative. Yeah. Is there a way to talk to the people who work in fossil fuels and convince them about how to transition? Yeah, definitely. I think, again, kind of going back to that personal level, um, talking to these workers um, about the challenges that they face in their industry and trying to and help them um, understand and, oh, and of course they might already understand um, but they just need a job um, and that is a huge you know factor in everyone's life they just need a job yeah um, and I think kind of just talking to them about that do you have something to say yeah like definitely and I think the fact is that the term just transition it underpins what school strike for climate is all about but the thing is that people on the front lines people in fossil fuel communities just do not know what a just transition 
would look like for them. And a lot of, uh, you know, Queensland national politicians have exploited that. They've, you know, equated a just transition means that you lose your jobs when that's the exact opposite of what a just transition means. Mm. Um, so I guess a lot more education is needed on what that principle would look like. Um, and, yeah, that's the responsibility of the opposition to do a lot better this time around, but also for movements like ours to really convey what that means. I feel like the Greens have been noticeably absent in this conversation. <coughs> Harriet, what do you think of the Greens and the job that they're doing when, I guess, you know, climate change action should be front and centre? So, we're non-partisan, so we don't, we don't comment on individuals. Yeah. Oh, um, we, <laughs> we will comment on the government because they are uh -huh. in power, but um, we have our demands and we would like every single political party across the spectrum to meet those demands. Yeah, we think that... <laughs> As a movement, we think it's really important that, uh, like, climate change, it's been so politicised, um, but it really shouldn't be because it isn't a political issue, it's a human rights issue. Um, and I think that politicising it is really taking away from the action that we could see because people feel like because they align with these views of this party, they can't believe in climate action. You know, they can't, you know, be doing this. Um, and I think it just really confuses people and it's just really undermining our need for action. Uh, whatever party you align with, uh, we want, you know, we want you involved. So it's really important that, we, you know, we remain bipartisan um, and, yeah... Oh. Yeah, that's why we're non-partisan. We think it's very important to unite people and that's what the strikes have done. Cool. I think that's probably, probably a smart move. Now, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to ask you one more question. After that, guys, we're going to go to audience questions. So we've got a couple of volunteers coming around with microphones. Have a think about what you want to ask. Um, Obviously, we've got three of the most engaged, articulate, involved young people in this movement that has, well, literally stopped traffic. <laughs> that was pretty great. But has also garnered media attention all around the world. So think of questions. Don't leave us hanging. But before we do that, I'm just going to come to each of you in turn and ask you about May 15. So, Milou, that's the next big day. What are you expecting? Will it be bigger? Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> How do you guys go about agitating for that? Like, what, is, what does the lead-up to something like that look like for you? A lot of work. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, we are doing yeah, a lot more organising and a lot more work for this um, next strike. Um, it looks very different in cities compared to regional areas. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll talk, still talk be going up to Melbourne mm -hmm. for our strike and um, we have some of our um, adult climate action groups helping to organise our Castlemaine strike. And we will, personally, and um, the students will go up to Melbourne because it's a really big atmosphere and it's really exciting to be a part of that. Yeah. Sorry, Doha, were you going to say something? No, no, no. no, you were just nodding in agreement. It was excellent. Harriet, what, what's it like being out there knowing you've been a part of such a big movement? How does it, how does it feel heading into the next big strike? Um, the strikes are always so exciting um, and so empowering because, I mean, I think it's just so easy to feel really isolated um, and uh, like, like a real minority because the people, you know, we're used to hearing talk about climate change are those in positions of power who are doing nothing um, and don't want climate action. Um, so going to the strikes is always just so, you know, motivating um, and we put so much, you know, work into making them happen but it's a real energy boost, like being there and just being surrounded with people who, with, you know, this common interest, people with, who come from all different backgrounds but, you know, share this same goal of climate action and it really, you know, makes you feel like we can, you know, we can get change. So I'm very excited. And yeah, if anyone wants an insight of what it really looks like to organise a strike as a school student, uh, we have a documentary that's released that's going to be released on the 15th of March by Junkie. Um, Harriet and I are both featuring in that and it, it's basically like a bunch of vlogs um, in the lead up to March 15th last year. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of tears, a lot of um, yeah, stress rants, but yeah. Where did the tears come from? Oh, there was a lot to cry about. <laughs> <laughs> I can, yeah, no, I can go on. Okay, fair enough. Okay, have we got... Have we got some questions in the audience. Please stick, please stick your hand up and we'll bring a microphone over. Hi, 
politicians kept on saying, can you hear me? The politicians yep. kept on saying you should all be at school. Yeah. Your school marks charm. Did your results, were, were they affected by your participation and your organisation? Did you guys hear that? So, you know, politicians kept saying you should be in school, which is Chad condescending. Um, did missing any of it affect anything to do with your education? I mean, yeah, it did. Um, I was a year 12, so... <coughs> I'm sorry for the cough. Um, yeah, missing school did impact, you know, my grades. But um, if it was a trade-off between doing something that would, you know, that would mean that I was trying to protect my future or studying. And, um, like, I don't regret the trade-off at all because I think the platform that we provided for Adelaide to, um, yeah, make a stand and make their voice heard on climate change is way more important than, like, a chemistry grade. I'm sorry, Mr. Matz. <laughs> Harriet? Yeah, I think that um, the, I, the, the point of me being educated is so that I have the skills um, I need to, you know, to try and help the people that, you know, need me and need my voice because um, in the privileged position that I'm in, um, you know, my decisions don't just impact my own future, they impact the futures of so many other people. So I feel like I'm putting my education into use um, and I feel like... In missing school, we are really obtaining a whole different, you know, part of education. We're learning about, you know, you know what we can do um, in and how to, I don't know, we're learning about our democracy and we're learning um, about politics. I feel like I've learned so much through this movement. Um, and so, like, although I'm missing, although I'm missing classes, um, I feel like I'm learning a lot through being on strike. What was the effect on you, Malou? Um, at the moment, I haven't really had this major effect. I'm in year 10 now, um, and my teachers are so supportive, um, and they give a few subjects. We have catch-up classes at lunchtime during the week mm -hmm. um, for the Specifically Fridays that we Specifically for people missed. who've missed. Yeah. Right. And for our strikes that we missed. So, yeah, at the moment, it's going pretty well, but... Um, yeah, I'm not sure about year 12. I think it will affect. Yeah, those were the, that, that was the reason for the tears. Right, and your school was kind of agnostic, is that right? I mean, yeah, like, on a personal level, a lot of teachers were supportive. I mean, like, my research project teacher is probably my biggest fan. Um, but at the same time, um, we are a public school and it is against department policy to endorse a strike action, especially for students. Um, but, yeah, they did the best they could, um, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Climate change might uh, interrupt schooling as well. The bushfires yeah, yeah, certainly exactly. did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, did. Uh, and we had another question here. Well, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you for um, what you're doing. You just put me um, tears of joy because I've been involved with something oh. similar when I was young. But um, my question is, is how, how do parents um, confront you or how would you confront your parents? Is it like a uh, positive conversation or a um, good feedback or it's, um, it's a long process? So it sounds like you guys are a bit of a mixture in terms of how your parents went through things. Maybe we should look at specifically when you talked about the strike and joining the movement. If each of you could just give us you know, a little insight into how that went down. Well, like for the longest period, I didn't even tell my parents that I was involved. Oh, you're um, in the striking closet. I know, yeah, oh. until September. So I lasted like a solid year in the closet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, it was tricky having that conversation with them because like a lot of parents, they do value my education and they do want the best for me. Um, but, I, yeah, it was a long process of convincing them that this is for, you know, the greater good, this is for my future. Even though studying is important, so is, you know, taking a stand to protect um, the climate. And Harriet, you had a more supportive... Yeah, definitely. Well, first, my parents were, were, they were a bit confused. They were a bit confused, like, why I was missing school for climate action. They were like, what does the school have to do with it, Harriet? Um, but, you know, once I explained, like, they were super um, supportive because um, my parents also really value my education, but in the end, like, they'd rather me alive and uneducated than dead with a diploma, so... Wow. <laughs> How do you reckon it would have gone if they weren't supportive? How would that have affected all your choices? 
Uh, well, that would have made it much more difficult. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I mean, to be honest, I don't know if I would have, um, if I hadn't grown up in such a supportive family um, where we always, you know, we talked about a lot of political issues um, and, you know, I were always having these conversations, then I probably, you know, wouldn't have been motivated to do this in the first place. But, um, I mean, <laughs> in the theoretical situation uh, that I did, I guess, oh my gosh, it would have been... You might have been in the closet <laughs> as well for a year Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that uh, it's very important that we, you know, we do this though. Um, for me, it's so important and even though it isn't at the moment having that great an impact on like my education, on things like that, and even though my parents are supportive, uh, like if it if things do start to change, um, I know that this has to be my priority because it's, you know, my future. For me, it yeah. was a bit different again. Um, my mum actually showed me the article on Greta Thunberg um, and then about a couple of days later, I think I was somewhere and I called her and I was like, I'm going to do it, I reckon. I reckon we're going to do it. And she's like... I was wondering when you were going to say that. Yeah. Like she's just, she just she knew it was knew. coming. Yeah. Your mum always knows. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So. All righty, can you hands up? Oh, over there, sorry. I just want to know, what are your impressions on fast fashion? Yeah, Harry, fast fashion. Harriet can take this one. <laughs> yeah, all right. And Malou too. But, um, yeah, well, I think fast fashion is bad. <laughs> um, I think being a conscious consumer is one of the best things you can do for the planet. Um, there's a definitely, there are a lot of stereotypes about like what an activist will look like and people imagine that as, you know, just someone standing on the street yelling into a microphone, but there are so many other things like you can do, um, like, you know, consciously uh, consuming things, especially fashion. So um, this year and last year, I've tried to only buy sustainably sourced clothing. Um, so from op shops and vintage stores or from um, clothes made out of recycled materials, um, you know, that are ethically produced. Um, so I think, yeah, that is really important. Um, it has a massive toll on our environment and it's so important. Also just that um, we're trying to get the most use um, out of our clothes. So I've also, I'm also starting to learn how to sew um, so that I can start upcycling clothes and turning old things into new ones. Um, so, you know, we're just not wasting all these materials. Amazing. Well, so I have... Oh. <laughs> I have four black outfits and I just wear a different brooch every day. And it's like a tie for guys, right? People think I'm wearing something new, but I'm not. Milo, how about you? What do you think about when you choose your clothes? Oh, um, I think I, I agree with Harriet. Um, also, please note, they're all wearing docks, which yeah, are fabulous, like, um, and a shoe like for life. The activist uniform. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely agree with Harriet. Um, I think that the clothing industry is such a huge impact on the environment and um, there's so many ways to just not buy that um, and I mean I come from a as everyone's saying I come from a very privileged position um, that I can choose not to buy new clothes but I am just buying them from the op shop so I don't know how that translates oh yeah sorry can I just add <laughs> even though I just want to make sure um I mean I don't get like misinterpreted here like I'm obviously just so lucky to be able to make those choices where like I am in like the financial position to be able to make those ethical choices but I understand that a lot of people don't have that privilege um and really you know need support from like the government and industries um to buy um like more sustainable clothing so I'm definitely don't judge people for having to make different choices because I know that everyone you know is in a different position to look at you checking me. your privilege in between <laughs> the double barrel answer I love it Doha and that's why it's so important for this sort of like you know move towards sustainability to be systemic it needs to come from the government it needs to come through subsidies um, you know communities cannot be left on their own to be sustainable it is the job of the government yeah to enable encourage to enable and encourage and yeah, barriers right yeah. alrighty have we got another we're getting close to the end guys but I think we've got time for another question good job okay. we've just got a microphone coming to you now Hi guys, um, I think you've talked about it a bit, can you go a bit more into, or maybe you can, how it's, 
what you've been doing, how it's really benefited you personally. So in terms of um, being a part of the movement? Yeah, on a deeper level. I reckon um, just, I guess, it's made me grow up, grow up really fast. Um, it's made me yeah, gain a lot of real-world experience that I would probably never have gotten if I had just, you know, stayed at school and not, yeah, not striked. Um, so I guess the educational aspect, as well as the social aspect of, you know, meeting so many like-minded, passionate young people like myself, um, yeah, that's been, like, yeah, a massive plus. Yeah, um, for me, I think it's really interesting that our Prime Minister talks about, uh, like, needless anxiety with this movement when, for me, this actually really prevented and really stopped a lot of my climate anxiety. Um, I think action is one of the best, um, like, antidotes to, like, depression and anxiety. Um, and, like, for me, before this whole movement, I felt really, like, helpless and, like, I couldn't really do anything because I can't vote and don't have, you know, like, a say in that political system. Um, but, like, this movement that is really... It's just so empowering. So, for me, like, I just felt... Um, I don't know, doing something made me feel just so much... Um, better I guess yeah, and good. so it gave me a lot of hope I love that don't don't feel anxious just be relaxed everything's fine coronavirus anyway Malou personally how has it how has it helped you are you a different person are you more yeah I am a bit of a different person um I think I'm much more confident in myself um and striking is such an like it's just so empowering for me it's probably almost the equivalent of just like planting heaps of trees it's just like you go out for a strike and you really feel like you've kind of done something and you've you've been a part of something um beautiful all right do we have any more questions we do have you can have um as like a student passionate about climate action how do you begin starting small how do you recommend starting small? Jordan Doha, I reckon, right. here. Um, so in terms of, yes, starting small is so important because that's what leads to, you know, much bigger things. Greta was just one girl striking outside of the Swedish parliament and, you know, now we're here. So all it takes is, yeah, three seconds of courage um, and you should never be afraid to reach out and ask for help. So if you have an idea, just... Pitch it to anyone who will listen and eventually you'll come across someone that can help you take the next step and make it bigger and scale it up. So, yeah, just not being afraid to ask for help. Are you from here? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, you, you, guys can, you guys can talk after maybe. Um, look, if we, we, we are sort of needing to wrap things up, we can maybe squeeze one more in, but otherwise we'll move along because... We're a WOMAD and there are many brilliant events out there. So can we all just final round of applause for Harriet Malou and Doha? <laughs> and this is obviously just the first of the Planet Talk series that will continue over the weekend. There are some amazing people tomorrow. I've got Mark Vanell, Kit Warhurst, Robert Smith, not from The Cure, another Robert Smith, but it'll be brilliant. Um, Sunday, I'll be back for the International Women's Day address with starring Jan Fran, who I think has just finished her year of not buying any new clothes. Um, get out there. There's a lot of brilliant music going on. Enjoy WOMAD. And uh, just remember, they'll be watching you. 